Welcome to Pantisocracy, and this is your host, Miss Panty Bliss. Hi. <laughs> thank you, thank you so much. I know you're all enthusiastically applauding because you've been told to do so beforehand. But actually, radio listeners who might want to go online to pantasocracy.ie to see why you're applauding so enthusiastically. But I should warn listeners that it's not because I look particularly gorgeous. It's because I think the audience appreciate my lesbian gallerist clown look that I'm <laughs> wearing today. Anyway, so um, welcome to our uh, cabaret of conversations. In our soiree tonight, we brought together some truly inspiring folk whose stories really show the idea that one person can make a difference when they stand up to be counted. So let me introduce them. First up, we have a young woman, Saoirse Long, whose decision to put her head above the parapet and tell her own abortion story in the days before the referendum to repeal the eighth fired her into the public eye and activism. Please welcome Saoirse. <laughs> Uh, next, I have a filmmaker, uh, Ms. Frank Berry, who uses his art to tell stories that reveal the often dark and unequal heart of society. And Frank's last film, Michael Inside, brought us into the lives of people in juvenile detention uh, through the story of one young Dubliner. So please welcome Frank. And we have another woman, a former IRFU executive, Katrina Bergen, who swapped a high-flying life in Dublin to shape her own version of the good life with the horses, the chickens, the lot in County Leitrim. So please welcome Katrina. <laughs> Katrina, I think of County Leitrim as being like the Fibsborough of Ireland because, you know, it's where cool people moved to live because they couldn't afford to live anywhere else. And now I just hope it doesn't turn into the Temple Bar because you're going to drive up all the property prices. Um, <laughs> and finally, we have with us one of, in my humble opinion, one of the world's great beauties, which is an introduction I'm sure she is pissed off about, but this is just you know, the kind of curse that beautiful people have to bear. It is Lisa Hannigan. <laughs> she is, of course, more than nearly beautiful. She's a singer-songwriter extraordinaire, but of course, for many young people, feck that, they don't care. All they care about is she is the voice of Blue Diamond in the Steven Universe TV animated series. And if you don't know what that is, you don't have any kids. Um, and Lisa is going to share us some songs later. So please welcome Lisa. <laughs> um, but first, I get to uh, hold the floor today in what we call the Panty Monologues. And when we were thinking about our guest today and the idea of taking a stand, um, I got to thinking, well, about my own accidental activism. You see... My father doesn't like custard. <laughs> I'm not really sure why. I mean, he likes eggs and he likes cream. He actually loves cream. And he likes sugar, but he doesn't like custard. And there wasn't any childhood trauma that involved custard. And he wasn't bullied by custard-wielding bullies. And nor did his <laughs> grandmother fall down the stairs and die after slipping on some custard that he had spilled. No, he just doesn't really like custard. And I inherited from my father a suspicion of custard. <laughs> I never tried it, but why would I? Because I didn't like it. You see, growing up, we never had custard in our house. And my mother is a great cook, you know, and, and a busy one. You know, there's always something on the go, and that included desserts. Desserts like apple crumble, the kind of dessert that almost cries out for custard, but which remained stubbornly custardless in the Bliss House. You know, some years ago, well into my adulthood, I discovered that my mother actually loves custard. But she was hardly going to make it just for herself. My mother isn't the kind of woman who would make things just for herself. And by the time she had kids who were old enough and might have eaten it with her, well, by then it had sort of just fallen off her mental menu. And so the absence of custard became self-perpetuating. <laughs> and it wasn't like we spoke ill of custard in our house, you know, not like we did about, for example, shop-bought cakes. <gasps> we just didn't talk about it at all. 
Oh, I mean, it was something that we were technically aware of as existing in the world, but it had an indistinct, vague quality. You know, something we heard mentioned in passing by friends at school or, you know, referenced on TV or in books, but which didn't impinge on our lives in any way at all. You know, like ginger beer or Iceland. <laughs> or Protestants, <laughs> or cocaine. <laughs> but even though we never spoke about custard or its absence in our lives, we did somehow, well, subconsciously absorb its absence. And we subconsciously assumed, therefore, that there must be something wrong with custard, that somehow it didn't pass muster, this custard. <laughs> <laughs> and so, though quite unintended by my parents, growing up in the Bliss house, I developed a deep suspicion of custard. I was in my mid-twenties before I discovered that custard is arguably the greatest of the many gifts that chickens have given the world. <laughs> I fucking love custard. It's a, a creamy, eggy delight. I could eat custard for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. If I had to choose five foods to take to a desert island, custard would be two of them. If I had a child, I would have to be talked out of calling it custard. Even, and even after I was talked out of it, I can't guarantee that I wouldn't have just scribbled down custard as a middle name when the registrar's back was turned. <laughs> but my father doesn't really like custard. And I wasted 25 years worth of potential custard because I had inherited his custard phobia. I mean, it is amazing what we get from our parents. And the older I get, the more I realize just how much of me is made up of them. And some of those things they would be happier to claim than others. You know, if my mother hears this, she'll be rolling her eyes in her head and she'll be, you know, turning off the radio because apparently now I found a way to blame her for not liking custard. And, you know, for God's sake, she said to herself, she could have had custard any time he wanted. <laughs> but I got a lot of amazing things from them too. You know, my parents are principled people, you know, righteous people. And that is a funny, unfashionable, kind of old-timey word, you know, righteous. But that is what they are. They have a moral code a set of principles by which they live. They have a sense of what they think is right and what they think is wrong. And they will never do what they think is wrong, no matter what the cost may be. They will take a stand and suffer the consequences, come what may. And I have tried to inherit that from them. I may not have always succeeded, but I have tried. And they are fair. They've always given everybody a fair shot. And that is something I didn't have to try to inherit because it would be almost impossible to get out of our house without it because it was something my parents actively, by word and deed, bred into us. We had no choice in the matter. And they're stubborn. They wouldn't necessarily put it that way, but they are. You know, once they've taken a stand, there's no budging them, and it can be a lethal combination. You know, for example, when I was growing up, my mother was comic secretary of the community games. She was always off to meetings or on the phone to whomever, and we were dragged up and down the province to hold finishing line tapes or deliver results to the tannoy guy um, or give numbers to runners. And my mother gave years of her life to the community games. And then one day there was a row. There was a row about a young boy that my mother didn't even know, a boy about 10 or 11, if I remember, and who was on a football team of the town where he went to school with all his mates. But the boy lived a few miles from the town, and Technically, his house was in the next parish. And he was a good player, obviously actually a very good player, because another team raised an objection to him playing with his team. He should, they pointed out, be playing for the next parish. But the boy didn't want to play with the next parish. He didn't even know them. So there was a meeting. It was discussed, and it was voted on, and it was decided that the rules were the rules. And sure, if we didn't stick to the rules, it'd be absolute mayhem, and that was that. And for my mother, that was that. As far as she was concerned, this was exactly what the community games wasn't supposed to be about. This wasn't right, the poor lad, and she wasn't going to stand over it. She would take a stand, and so she quit. 
she stubbornly and fabulously quit on the spot. You know, a decision that hugely changed life in our house. Because the community games had been this huge thing in our house for years. And now it just wasn't. And my mother never questioned that decision because it was the right thing to do. In a weird way, that boy changed my life. But you can never really tell what's going to change your life. Four and a half years ago, I made a speech. I won't bore you all with the boring details, but suffice to say that I said some stuff on TV and some people were unhappy and sued me and RTE for defamation, an accusation that I thought, and I am speaking only for myself here, an accusation that I thought was unfair. And it annoyed me that it was unfair. And shortly after that, RTE paid out some money, a decision which left me feeling a little abandoned, dangling in the wind alone. And I thought, again, speaking only for myself, that that was also unfair. I didn't like it. So when I was invited to make a short speech at the Abbey Theatre, I thought I'd talk about this unfair thing that was annoying me. I hadn't up to that point had a proper chance to talk about the unfair thing because the lawyers had made everybody afraid to talk about it at all. But there were no lawyers in the Abbey. Well, my lawyer was there and he thought it was an absolutely terrible idea, but I'm stubborn. I make speeches all the time. I'd made many before that one, and I've made many since. And they're usually quite well received by the people in the room, but they don't generally go any further than the room. And this one would be no different, I assumed. I had no expectations, but that was fine. I wasn't making the speech because I thought it would change anything. I was just making the speech for me, on a principle, stubbornly against advice. I had no choice anyway. I had decided to take a stand like my parents would have, and I am stubborn. So I made the speech, and something totally unexpected happened. People connected with what I'd had to say in a way that no one could have anticipated or imagined. It spread from the Abbey and took on a life of its own, spreading literally around the world. And while a lot of people connected with it because they also experienced the same unfairness that I described, so many others connected with it because what I'd said, they felt articulated what they felt about other unfairnesses in their lives. And they wrote to me, hundreds of them, thousands of them, people like me, sure, gay people, but also people in wheelchairs, uh, people with autism, deaf people, fat kids in school, people of color, they wrote to me and told me their stories. They were taking a stand. This deluge was utterly and totally unexpected, but it was also inspiring and maddening and thrilling and wonderful and scary and a terrifying responsibility and occasionally devastating. It was life-changing, I mean, literally life-changing. It was powerful, and it was the power of taking a stand. Seriously, I'm going to start with you, um, because you had an experience that's very similar to mine in a way. It was, yeah. And because I had no expectations of that speech, I, I thought nothing of it, and then it sort of launched me into this whole thing. And you had a very similar experience. So just before the referendum, yeah. tell us what happened. So I guess just before I had gone through what a lot of women have gone through in this country in abortion, I kept it to myself because you couldn't speak about it. We're a Catholic country. It wasn't acceptable. So when I went through that experience, after I'd come home, I dealt with all that fear and anxiety alone mm. because it wasn't even in my head to, to talk about it. Yeah. I couldn't say to friends and stuff because it just wasn't mm. the norm to talk about it. So I'm seeing posters, I'm seeing pictures, I'm, I'm hearing campaigns and I'm watching every single day TV horrible things being said I was hooked on it really and my boyfriend's here in the audience he knew nothing and it was the 
night, the Late Late Show decided to talk about it. I think we were going to go for a walk. And he said, come on, let's go for a walk. And I was like, I, I need to watch this. And he was like, we can watch it when you get back. Like, you know, it's fine. And I was like, I need, and then I started bawling crying. And I was like, I have been through this. I thought he was going to break up with me. I thought, I'm horrible. I'm a devil. I'm, I'm everything wrong in a person. So he was amazing. And from then I said, okay, I want to tell my story. And I just kind of thought, right, I'm not ashamed anymore. This happened to me. I was denied proper healthcare in my own country. And that was as simple as it was. It's time to, to speak up. Mm. I was hearing hard cases, you know, people that had abnormalities. Mm. And I thought, well, I am one of the seven girls that have been in a really shitty situation, like a lot of people have. Mm. Okay, I, I made a mistake. I made a mistake. I didn't take my pill properly. Why should I go through something I don't yeah. want to go through? The decision to sort of throw off shame is very liberating. Absolutely. You know, as a gay person, it's something I can identify with. So tell people who don't know what you actually did then. So you... So I rang up a, f a director friend of mine. I said, look, I have a story to tell. Can you film it? I went over to his apartment. He had set up the whole thing. He said, look, I'm going to press record on the camera. I will leave the room and I will edit the start and the end of it. So I went there and it was the first time that I spoke about it. It was the first time that I relived that story. Mm. And even I can't watch that back without crying because it's, it's so real. So I'm sitting in my house and I'm going, okay, I'm going to pull up now. I'm going to pull up now. And then I was like, no, no, I'm not. Claire Byrne live. I don't know if anyone saw that. I mean that put me back into a hole again. I just felt it was all one-sided. I was evil. I had no reason to have an abortion. It was pure selfishness, as people were saying. I knew deep down that that's not the way I should feel. And I thought, I'm going to have no job, I'm going to have no friends, I'm going to have no family. So I, I told Gareth, the, the director, I said, I'm not putting it up, I'm not putting it up. He said, look, you made this for you, so, so that's okay. And I kind of thought, right, okay, I did make it for me, so... Every day I was like, I will, no, I won't, I will, I won't. Yeah. And, and I thought, okay, I have to do it. So one morning I got up really early and I just uploaded and I paced the kitchen up and down, up and down, and I was dreading what was to come. And honestly, I got a probably about 99% positive feedback from mm. it. And of course, there's going to be the horrible people that send horrific things that do get to you, but I've learned to kind of deal with that. Um, so yeah, it, it just it lifted a weight off my shoulders mm. that I never thought. I mean, I didn't know you at all. And no. I remember seeing it and being really blown away by it because it felt um, like I was hearing this kind of story for the first time, even though you know, it wasn't. I, we, I'd heard, you know, Roshan English story and Tara yeah. Flynn's whatever but there was something so raw about it and it, it really had a huge impact on me and I and I'm not clearly I'm not alone in that but did the reaction to it then make you feel like you had some sort of responsibility after oh, that or hugely so I was inundated with messages mm. you can't imagine what it's going to be like when when you do put it out there and I counted 600 plus I think 620 women contacted me who have been in my situation I've had teachers contact me friends like, I've had people reach out to me that I would never in a million years have thought had gone through this and have hidden it away from their kids, from their family, because they're ashamed. And they're still hiding it because they, they don't feel that they were able to come forward and they still don't feel that they can. Mm. And if they don't want to come out, that's fine. But to not have to feel any shame yeah. is a huge thing. Mm. And I made sure that I wrote back to every single person, which is probably crazy. Every single person that wrote to me. I just felt... 
I can't believe the support I'm getting. And it was it meant the world to me, as you probably felt yeah. back then as well. But the problem then was that a lot of these girls had no one else yeah. to talk to. Well, it's in a way, it's about this sort of stigma Huge that attached stigma. to having an abortion. Yeah. And that's something that I'm very interested in. I do a lot of work around stigma, with, around HIV at, at the moment. But Frank, I want to come to you. So your last film yeah. was about people in juvenile detention. And in a way, to me, it seems there's a similar thing there, the sort of stigma of having been in juvenile detention. Well, I was also very impacted by Saoirse's story, and yeah. I think stories are really yeah. powerful, and I think they make people feel less alone. And my, my approach to storytelling and to filmmaking is to collaborate with real experiences. So it came from a, a process of making community videos where I would just listen to people. And that and has been your working method through all of your films, right? Yeah, it has. I mean, when I first started making films, I was like... Your first film, sorry, just, it was Ballymun Lullaby, a documentary about the, uh, the flats coming down. That's right. That's, that, that's my first um, feature. But way before then, when I left college, I was making more traditional dramas and yeah. TV and short films and that kind of work. But I wasn't finding myself very happy making that kind of work. I felt that a director for hire type role would have been better suited to somebody else. And mm. I was got quite despondent, wondering, did I have the right character for this type of profession, you know? But I was being offered community films, smaller local films, and I just found myself drawn to that organically. Mm. And they led me to a feature film where I made it like a community film, but it was a feature length. And then yeah. I went into cinemas and I felt I'd found my feet as a filmmaker mm. uh, organically by figuring out what I didn't want to do. But very much drawn to that idea of listening to people. I just loved it. I loved listening to real stories. Yeah, and your focus of ours has been on young people for the most part. Yes. So it was about Ballymun and Lullaby, about younger people um, who had lived in the flats and that. And then the, the next film was about uh, suicide clusters. And that again was about young people. And then Michael Inside. Yes, it's, it's definitely what I'm drawn to. You know, finding stories that move me. And uh, for my next film, I read an article about suicide clusters among teenagers. And again, it just had a, had a very profound uh, impact on me. The film is called I Used to Live Here. That's right. And it's set... It's set in, um, in Tala. I didn't really know where I was going to go with the film at the beginning. All I knew was that I read this article written by uh, Dr. Tony Bates. Who's also here in the audience, yes. Tony Bates. Ah, yes. Thanks for being here, Tony. Great friend of the programme. So this is the doctor there. Yep. It had quite an impact on me how when a suicide tragedy occurs in a community, particularly among young people, it can happen that somebody else in that community who may be one or two people uh, away from that tragedy may not have known the person who died, but who may be in their own crisis and who could be more at risk. The article discussed how suicide clusters can emerge. Mm. And uh, I just felt that this should be something that we should all be talking about because when a tragedy occurs, then we need to be equipped with this information. We need to be aware that this can happen. Mm. And everybody in the film is from the community. They're all non-professional actors. So mm. after Ballymun Lullaby, you see, I wanted to continue the process of, of collaboration with the community because yeah. I had such a great experience. And how, how did the community react to it? I think it's safe to say there's a lot of pride in the area. Mm. There's a very, very strong sense of them in the film. It's told in a very, very realistic way. So I think they're very proud of actually having stood up and said this happens in communities all over the world yeah and we want to make sense of it and i think that comes across very very strongly and because unfortunately suicide is something that has touched nearly all of us in some way and sitting beside you here uh, katrina you know you're no exception to that um, very sadly would you like to tell us how you got sort of into this um uh, well my uh, my eldest brother avna died by suicide six years ago and it just shocked everybody um 
we didn't really know what to do with it. Mm. And so for his first year anniversary, instead of having an anniversary and all being doom and gloom and sad, and I just wanted to try and do something positive. So I arranged for myself and my cousins and my family to go and do Hell and Back. And basically we had been to hell. And so we decided we'd yeah, do that. Back is one of those crazy yeah, yeah, like climbing over mudder, things. Yes, yeah, right, mud. sporty things. And we did it in the February. So they actually had to break the ice on the water before you got into it. So there was like an inch of ice on the top of the water that you had to run through first. So nobody could actually feel their legs as they were running up the side of the sugar loaf. But um, we decided we'd do that for Pieta House and we raised eight and a half thousand euro. But after that, I didn't really feel like it was enough, although it goes to very good cause and very, very good uh, services. It was more about what can I do to make things a little better or help or like Saoirse is just like to support people. Mm. I was getting fed up with this not being able to talk, particularly men. Men just don't talk about it, won't talk about it, can't talk about it. I don't know what it is. And I was like, right, okay, what can I do to start a conversation about this and get people talking? And I was like, right, if I shave all my hair off... Which is the obvious first thought, yeah. Of course, yeah. yeah. Um, but I just needed to do something extreme. I had quite long hair, so I... Like, you were the kind of woman who had the big mane and... I had the big, and I used to curl it and, you know, all the girly things and stuff like that. So I said, right, okay, if I shave off all my hair, I just want to shock people because I want people to go... What the, you know, what's going on here? And it was basically, if I have no hair, am I less of a woman? I would hope the answer is no. And likewise, if men talk about their emotions, does it make them less of a man? No, of course not. It'd be stupid. So talk about stuff. So I kind of just started this campaign about Just Talk and I started a Facebook page and I started Twitter and I went on TV3 and I talked about it and I talked and I talked and I shaved my head and loads of people helped on the day. There was people getting waxed and <laughs> I raised 13,500 euro. Um, yes, I think which was a round of applause for that. <laughs> which is a, a lot more than I expected. Yeah. So I was quite shocked that I got that. But like, like seriously, you just had so many people contact you through the Facebook page and tell you their stories. And then I got involved with Pieta House and through the IRFU, we started up the Mind Your Buddy program. Mm. It's a person within a rugby club or a number of people who either can see the signs or, you know, have the skill set to start that conversation. And it's a brilliant initiative. And I think it should be in every community, not just a sports club. I mean, I want to ask you a few things about the hair. First, I want to point (laughs) out how stupid I am, because... um, when I first saw you, which are mohawk shaved kind of thing, and then I, you know, I put together that you used to play rugby for Ireland and all that, I thought, oh, she's a lesbian. <laughs> and it turns out you're not at all. I'm just an no. idiot. I'm just, yeah, I have all these cliched it's, ideas. It's about, okay. You, you wouldn't <laughs> be the first person. But, 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 but so um, here's the interesting question, though. Is you, you didn't grow it back. You no. were this woman whose mane was very important to you, was mm. part of who you were. Yeah, and, I had this awkward phase of this weird mop of hair. And I was like, what am I doing? Hair was a nightmare. It, to be honest, I would go around bald if I could, but it's not overly socially acceptable to rock and a bald do all the time. So I went to a hairdresser and I said, do you know what, give me a mohawk. She's like, are you sure? I'm like, yeah. She's like, really? I really want to do it. Like, are you sure? Because I have never done a mohawk before. I was like, go for it. I'm, I'm interested in the hair thing just personally. I should, mm. And I hope my mother won't mind me saying this. I don't think she will. But um, <laughs> my mother is dealing with cancer at the moment and right. she's um, having chemo. And mm. you know, the hair falling out... I mean, I kind of vaguely knew that it was a, it was a big thing for women mm. and chemo and all that, but I, it's really a big thing. Yeah. And um, I think it's really the first part of the whole process that really gave my mother pause. And we went 
you know, to wig shop because I'm the family expert and uh, <laughs> uh, we got fabulous hair. She looks like Christine Lagarde now. And, um, <laughs> but just being there in the, the place um, where the wig lady is, who's lovely down in Galway, she was wonderful. And I could tell from her that she'd done this a lot of times with a lot of people. And she was very aware that people can be upset by it and all that. Because it has a, it's a power, it has a power, the hair, hair for a woman. And you turn, use that power to make a statement. Yeah. But it's interesting to me that you then never went back. No, it's really liberating. Hmm. But the night that I shaved it, I walked outside and it was bloody freezing. Hmm. You don't understand how cold it can be without having hair. I'm sure <laughs> bald men know exactly how cold it is. But it, it really is. Like even, you had to wear a woolly hat for, for three or four nights to go to bed. But you nearly have to change how you dress as well in order to kind of rock the look as such. I suppose you have to put a bit of an attitude on as well when you do it. Um, Now, Lisa, I want to talk to you uh, first about this animated thing, because anybody who has kids will know that they're all obsessed with this blue diamond Steven Universe. And it's absolutely massive. And, And so in this particular world, you're an absolute goddess. I mean, you're... Huge, you're the voice of Blue Diamond. <laughs> yes, I'm one of the Diamond Overlords. Tell me how that came about. What's the story there? Um, I got an email from Rebecca Sugar, who's the, the showrunner of, of Steven Universe, the show on Cartoon Network. She's the first female showrunner on Cartoon Network, writer, director, everything. She's amazing. She'd heard me do the voice in Song of the Sea, the cartoon yes, saloon. Yes, and so she asked me to audition, and so I just, into my iPhone, I just sort of, like... <laughs> recorded me saying sentences and sent them back. <laughs> and I said, I have, I have an Irish accent. I don't think I can not have an Irish accent. Because um, it's set where? Well, that was the thing. It's set in a home world. <laughs> People are gems. I could get away with this. It was fine. She said, the accent is the least of the wor- your worries. It's fine. So you're alone in a room somewhere in Dublin, in a studio somewhere in Dublin, recording your bits. Yeah. And you never see the other voice actors or anything. No, the other voice actor, the other diamond is Patty Lapone. <laughs> You're kidding me. So I'm really glad I'm not in the same room. I would this thing and I didn't see that. (laughs) Patty Lapone as in Goddess Broadway. She's Yellow Diamond. So yeah, I would would crumble into a a pile of dust if I had to be in the same room as Patty Lapone. So no, it's just me in a booth with a big Skype situation set up and then they're all in LA talking me through it on Skype as I'm reading the script. It's weird and absolutely brilliant. Like the best day of the month is when I have to go in and be You do it one day a month? Well, it works and out as something like that. fortune. <laughs> but Lisa, let's have a song. Okay. Do you want to tell us what you're going to do first for us? Uh, I'm going to do a song called Little Bird, which is a very, when I heard the theme of taking a stand, it's a very small personal version of taking a stand.
When the time comes And rights have been read I think on you often But the once I meant what I said always I'm also jealous of singers like you you know they yeah, can just do that so you know I mean, well actually so, uh, what's the about, about the song well I was in a difficult situation that I sort of didn't realize how unpleasant it was until many years after but that song was sort of just about eventually just saying enough is enough and mm. and walking away from something Saoirse yeah now you made this video it, it became this huge thing and suddenly you find yourself the focus of other girls and women who've been in your position. Yeah. And then you decided you were going to do something about that. Yeah. So I, I hit a huge high. You know, it was brilliant. Obviously, we passed for Flying Colours. It was amazing. And then I hit a huge low. And I didn't want anything to do with Twitter. I didn't want to, I just kind of, I couldn't deal with it. Honestly, I just went, why did I come out with this story at all? Now I have some relationships with friends and stuff that are distant, I'd say. They probably think it's because of... Uh, well, I think people d- still don't know how to open up and 
talk so I think they don't know what to say to me maybe so I kind of I went through a big low of going why did I bother coming out because now I've kind of tarnished that relationship and now I'm feeling really low and although it passed mm. there was a few girls that were writing to me asking you know how I am and what counsellor I've been going to and whatever so I thought right there's girls out there that need support you know that have gone through what I've gone through like myself that could do with meeting up with other girls you know to talk about our stories so I wrote to the Minister for Health Simon Harris who by the way is an absolute and utter gentleman did he know who you were when you no I met him the day of the referendum and he just said thank you so much and the personal stories had a huge impact and but he he wrote me on Twitter then you know, to see how I was. And I, I said, you know, I hit a low and now I want to I want to give back. I want to help these girls because I think it's no good passing and then forgetting about the girls that have gone through this. Of course, we need to help the future women. Mm-hmm. But what about these women that are left behind now? So anyway, spoke to Simon Harris. He was 100% behind us. So we're putting that in place now. So we're getting a support network in place he'll fund it it's it's like a sort of a counseling service yeah pretty much yeah so basically a support group where either we're going to have like an online kind of chat we're going to meet up as well we're going to have um, your support group really pretty much yeah 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 yeah. well I'm really happy for you for that because um I know how overwhelming it can be when it suddenly drops on you like that yeah so well done you definitely thank you yes (laughs) (laughs) Katrina I want to come back to you again because um, there's this, we kind of skipped over it in the introduction, but this whole you moving to the countryside with the chickens and all of that. You had played rugby for, for Leinster, and then, uh, so you're an IRFU official. What was your. Well, I was uh, in charge of women's rugby for Ireland, and then moved into project management and did IT and kind of put in systems and helping clubs to better manage themselves, all these kind of things. You're such a doer. Are you sure you're not a lesbian? <laughs> <laughs> Positive, positive. <laughs> um, but I, uh, I'd been training for a triathlon and I got run off my bike and so I had t- time out of work and there was all the mental health stuff after my brother and I'd done the head shave and done all this kind of stuff and I felt like I really needed to do something and I was doing all the mind your buddy stuff and then I realised, you know, I was out of work and I'm sitting there going... Like, is this going to be my life? I need to get back into this little metal box every morning and spend an hour and a half in traffic to drive 12 kilometres to the office to sit in another box and to get miserable about my job and then to get back in a metal box, get angry about people in cars, to get home to sit in another bloody box and then do that for 95% of my life. Because that's life. You know, you get a job, you get a mortgage, you get a house, you do all these things that's expected of you in society. You're just like, what? You know, there's more to life than this. This is, it's, this is not a dress rehearsal. Like, this is it. You've got one life, one life only. What am I doing? And I used to surf, so I used to go up to Bundoran quite a bit. I've got a load oh, of friends. Oh, come on, you're a lesbian. <laughs> 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 and uh, so I just love being up there and a load of friends. And it was a completely different way of life. I had friends who just live in a van. And I'm like going, and they're perfectly happy. I'm like... Maybe I need a bit more of that in my life, a bit more of, you know, just out there in nature, enjoying things. So I had kind of realized that my life as a pretend career person was coming to an end. I just couldn't, like I could keep doing it. I could have been a lifer in the IRFU. That could have been an easy, that could have been an easy way. It was a very comfortable job, very well paid and all the rest of it. Uh, But was this sort of taking stock connected to your brother's... Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It was all about mental health. My head was all over the place. I was like, I need time out. I need to figure out 
what is this all about? Like, is it all about just having a job and paying a mortgage? Am I just working to live? And how did Leitrim come about then? Well, it's really cheap. You were right. <laughs> the Very island. cheap. Leitrim and Arts and all that. Yeah, sort of no, but it's only but where I live is only 20 minutes from Bundoran. But, but now, you, did you have a partner at the time when you were moving to Leitrim? I did, I did. But he was, he was not the reason to or not to go, either okay. or. Because because some people here in the studio audience who can sort of see you, or if they go online, look at you, they might recognize you, because you went on First Dates, the TV program, ah. and, uh, you know, if you're looking for a fella. One lonely night in Leitrim <laughs> after a bottle of wine. One will, you know, <laughs> sign up to anything. <laughs> for, the, for the gas crack of it, um, what happened on First Dates? Oh, yeah, that was fun. The most silent date I think I've ever been on. Very, very strange environment. Everything is silent so they can hear you on the microphones. So it's like having a date in a library. What? It's awful. <laughs> they put that noise in the background. They put it in. Oh, they make those people be really quiet. Oh. Yeah, I know. That is. I'm letting I'm like I'm letting in. Yeah. Open, you know, I'm letting I'm going to get in trouble. You know, I'm not naive <laughs> about telly stuff. But those people are not eating and having real dates around. Well, they are. No, there's two background dater tables and they were having a chat, but Only they were two. told to be too quiet. Yes, yeah, so there was four people and then myself and himself. <gasps> And then all the, the staff are just standing there looking at you. Oh, God. <laughs> That's yeah, really yeah. 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 So It's like having a date in a goldfish bowl, a silent library. I don't know, oh, but it was the strangest oh God, strangest I really situation. believed it. I thought <laughs> they were, was it a noisy... No, busy? they put that noise in the background. I'm probably going to get in lots of trouble now. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're allowed to tell the truth. Yeah. All right. Like What they don't show you is the date lasted nearly two odd hours long. And the best bits they put in it. So the best bits were about three and a half seconds worth of conversation. Oh that was it. I'm honestly devastated. <gasps> devastated. Because I, I thought your first day was just different than all the rest. Yeah. yeah. They wanted people to do nice things. It's all smoke and mirrors. Oh. It's like old telly. Damn it! Now, Frank, uh, I want to come back to you um, because your last film, um, Michael Inside. Yes. And it is about a young man who ends up in juvenile detention for a tiny bad thing that he did, the kind of bad thing that any young person might have ended up doing, yeah. and then how that tiny bad decision affects the rest of his life. The, the idea came from when I was making my previous film, I spent a lot of time with young people and listening to them and talking to them about their vision of their lives. But I was struck by uh, there are a lot of young people living in disadvantaged communities in Ireland who are already feeling uh, defeated and I just met a lot of young people and I have done other projects over the years who, who are vulnerable to getting involved in crime, who not necessarily want to be involved. But because of the frequency of activity that's going on around them, they're making decisions that not necessarily are decisions in their minds. They're like invisible. They're just mm. doing what they see other people doing. Mm. So I came up with the idea to make a film that would be set in a, a crime context, but would be focusing on a young person who would be like an extra on one of those dramas, you know, like mm. Love, Hate, perhaps. Yeah. But somebody who uh, gets involved because of other people's activities. Yeah. And that's the story of a lot of people. Yeah. So I thought, OK, well, I had this idea for this young young character, Michael, and I, I, I said, right, I'd love to talk to people who've been through, this, through the prison experience. And so many of them said to me, that's my story, really. I never really wanted to be a criminal. Or, but this one particular moment in their lives, their, the trajectory of their lives changed by one degree. And then every day that goes by, they're on a different path. And it's very difficult to go back. And, and spoiler alert here, it's grim. Yeah, and it's a story that is real. And I could have ended the story perhaps more optimistically for Michael, but that just wasn't true of the people I was sitting in front of. And I didn't want to portray that, you know. So, and also, if the film has a, has a more of an uplifting ending, then it's less, there's less to discuss. I did everything I could 
to research the film as realistically as I could in an Irish context in terms of the experience of somebody who goes through this. And we actually depict that on screen so people can watch this film and actually we can discuss many young lives and the system and uh, it has value. And you wanted them to leave feeling what? Angry? Um, I think the film is going to and has enlightened many, yeah. reaffirmed what many people know to be true. But yes, angry, yeah. Mm. And also to want to talk about it. And also, you know, maybe to encourage empathy in yeah. lives that we may walk past on the street. Mm. And there's a story behind everybody who's come, yeah. in, who, who's come in contact with, with, with drugs. And actually the young man, an amazing young actor, David Flynn, who plays Michael, said to me once, so many of the people that he knows who've gone through this, who, were invo- who are, went to prison for this type of drug offence, were, were Michael mm. Woods, you know? And, and as Saoirse's story points out, things that seem like small or one person's thing can really have an effect sometimes. Yeah, that was a big turning point for me in the way I think about filmmaking was when I made the, the film in, in Ballymun because it went to film festivals around the world and, and uh, there were so many. I realised by telling this really small local story, almost the smaller you go with the story, it can resonate hugely yeah. and people could relate to the experiences of the Ballymun community mm. all over the world, you know. And yeah. that was a turning point in my own thinking about storytelling. And Lisa, so like a lot of artists, you get called upon a lot to support different things and work with different things. But one of the causes you've done a lot with is homelessness. So why homelessness? I mean, I'm sure you get asked to support every cause under the sun. I, mean, that's I did some work with the High Hopes Choir, which is a, a group of homeless people forming a choir. David Brophy from RTEM runs the choir. And it was such an extraordinary experience. And he worked on ba- Ballyman Lillip that, by right, Frank's film. That's right. Yeah. Yes, great man. Uh, great man. And and it was just incredibly moving. And, and I think the point of being in a choir is you sort of have to melt into everyone else. You don't want someone who's a great singer singing loudly, you know. Yeah, there's no I in choir. There's no... <laughs> <laughs> and um, and you, it is about sort of people who have been through so much and been so disassociated from their community. And it was at Christmas time and it was, it, yeah, it was just one of the most beautiful experiences of my life singing with those guys and I hope to do it again you know yeah. soon um, and but interestingly when you were talking about causes I was just like Saoirse in terms of shaking my fist at the the newspapers and listening to every single thing on the telly and the radio and and it was actually seeing her speak on Pat Kenny wasn't it that that made me go I have to go out and canvas now because mm. it was the only way I could sort of get rid of that feeling of like you know, I'd be having these arguments in my head with people yeah. <laughs> that I had never met uh, and I just could not stop thinking about it. And actually the only way to dissipate that feeling was to... Yes, because I didn't really mention that yet. It was serious, and I'm not going to refight the referendum here or anything, but yeah. just to remind people, my, um, you were in the audience of Pat Kenny and this yeah. is before you made your video? Or it was after? actually after. It was and after, so yeah. You, you're in the audience and yeah. Senator Ronan Mullen is one of the people who's debating and you put your hand up and I remember so clearly seeing you do this and you briefly tell your personal story and you have trouble finishing it because you're so emotional about it and it's so clearly painful. Yeah. And now Senator Ron Mullins isn't here to defend himself, so, but he, he replied to you in a way that a lot of people felt was very dismissive. Yeah. And it was one of those moments during the campaign that it solidified something for a lot of people. I think it's one of the key moments and it seems like it was so tiny. Yeah. And yet I think for a lot of people it was one of the big moments yeah. uh, and like Lisa remembers it and it inspired her to do something you know after that did you feel that you had done something I wasn't even going to go on 
Pakenny, I was, I, I'd made the video and I was going, oh, I don't want to be on, I don't want to talk about it anymore. Anyway, I, I did end up going on and they said, well, you might not get a chance to speak, which I was totally fine about. And then obviously Pat came to me. Uh, my emotions, everything was so high at that point anyway. We didn't know what way it was going to go. So to sit there in front of somebody who will never understand what it's like, he will never walk in my shoes, will never have to, to turn around and say that to me. I just went into shock mode. I, I couldn't really like I said, he's not here to defend himself so well. No, but... Um, and I, yeah. I will say that, you know, it's possible that he, you know, it came out differently than he intended yeah, or yeah. whatever, but that's how a lot of people saw it at the time. And yeah. It, it really was a memorable moment. It's and I couldn't get the words out anyway, but um, my battery had died after that, so on my way home I thought, oh, I didn't get my point across properly because I choked up in the middle of talking about it, but thankfully people understood the pain that mm. women like me Go That's through what and transmitted. Yeah, and it was the same when you did your noble call. It was yeah. the same thing. Like both of the referendums, sort of people just telling their personal stories is mm-hmm. what, what cut through the kind of magic spell of yep. shame and silence. And that you know, it, it was we were all under this sort of magic spell, and then yeah. people coming forward and saying, "This is how it feels to me." Yeah, yeah. and I think that breaks the spell. Breaks or the, the spell. The shame yeah. spell, whatever. So, uh, you know, I'm living with HIV and having for many years and I'm very healthy and wonderful and thank you all for inquiring. And I was like, <laughs> I was 95 when it was a death sentence and it was terrible and awful and all of that. And then there's been these amazing advances in treatment and so on and so forth. And um, so it's an entirely different world and it's an entirely different thing. But how many people can you name that you know in Ireland that are HIV positive? Well, there's probably me and maybe, I don't know, you might know another one or something. And that's remarkable. People don't hide the fact that they have cancer or, you know, all these other things. But, but there's this stigma and shame attached to it still. But even I will sometimes still sense that little, you know, thing about it. And any time I speak about it, I know that over the next little while, I'm going to get the letters. And they email me. And they're living down, often, not always, but often, they're living in smaller towns or, you know, outside of the big urban centres. And they're living with HIV, and they've never told a single other soul in their life. The only person who knows is the doctor at the clinic that they're attending, if they're attending a clinic. Because sometimes they're so, after they're diagnosed, they're so consumed by the stigma about it that they've never gone to treatment. And so the only person they've ever told is a drag queen that they've never met before. Because they think that they can tell me, but then they don't think they can tell anybody else. And so this thing that I treat so lightly, and for these people... It's not like that because they're carrying it totally alone. They've never made a lighthearted, off-the-cuff joke with a friend about it. They've never complained about being late for work because they were stuck in the clinic because there was, you know, some of the addicts were acting crazy and slowing up the blood's line. You know, the things that I would do to, that totally normalize it and, um, and take all the fear out of it. And they don't have any of that. And they're carrying this massive thing that is killing them. And they write to the drag queen that they heard on the radio. Yeah because they don't think they can tell anybody else. And, and to me, that's so reminiscent of or mirrors the way you know, young women who've had abortions in this country were, went through this huge thing and were never able to tell anybody about it. And still, you wouldn't, I wouldn't be laughing about this to my friends, like, oh, she had an abortion. or You mm-hmm. know, it's still not talked about. Yeah. And even the word abortion, I've, I've talked about this with a few girls that have gone through it. They don't like to say it. Mm. And I, I kind of get that. You do kind of feel... 
the word is, is so... Yeah. Well, see, the, 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 and the weird thing is, so people often sort of say, I have these conversations in my sort of workish life, and then mm. they say, what do you think is the, way, the best way to remove that kind of stigma? And as often, the gays have led the way. Because then, <laughs> you know, 30 years ago, there was a massive stigma around being queer in this country, and, yeah. you know, Muslim. And today, it's entirely different. And that is because of lots of things, education and all sorts of things, and changing legislation and all that stuff. But... The really big thing that changed was people coming out. Yeah. Because it's very easy to hold prejudices and stigmas or, you know, about people that you don't actually know. Yeah. So if somebody tells you that you know, gays are this way or whatever, mm. it's easy to believe that if you don't actually know any. But if suddenly you realize that your brother is gay and your neighbor's lesbian and the lovely woman who works in the post office is lesbian and, you know, and your co-worker is trans, it becomes very difficult then to hold prejudices against them because you know them as real people. Yeah. And so that's what changed the world, people com- coming out. And we could end, I you know, believe we could end yeah, HIV stigma or abortion stigma, where if everybody who had been through those things felt able yeah. to just be open and honest about it. But of course, we haven't made the, done the groundwork to uh, make them feel comfortable doing that. Exactly. But it's the same as mental health. Yes, yeah. it absolutely Depression, is. anxiety. I yeah. think every single person I know has dealt with one level of anxiety or depression at one stage in mm-hmm. life, whether it's situational, something happened mm. and there was depression afterwards mm. or whether it is, you know, long-term chronic depression. Nobody talks about it because yeah. yeah. everybody looks okay on Facebook. Yeah. yeah. Everyone's okay. Yeah. Yeah, let's cheer you on. And in behind... People are dying inside. Yeah. Like, where but I've is it moved getting to? better, do you think? I mean, no. it's been quite a number of years since you did the Let's Talk thing. Not, so. not in the, I, I don't feel it's getting better in the slightest. And I think probably where I live now, it's one of the worst things I have ever seen. There's been three suicides of all ages, like young to a, a, a lady in her 50s. It's frightening. And in rural Ireland, it is horrendous because there aren't the services but also everybody knows everybody. Mm. So God forbid you mentioned there's something wrong with you or somebody saw you going into a doctor or saw you going to a therapist or a psychotherapist or whatever because, oh Jesus, then they'd know. Yeah. And then you're weak, in particular with the men. Mm. And it's frightening because it's killing them, literally killing them, and they won't do anything about it. And it, I have this argument with people all the time. I'm just like, just go have a chat. I go to a psychotherapist, I don't care. Mm. And whatever it takes to make sure that I'm okay, I'm happy and I'm healthy, I go do it. I live on a bloody farm for crying out loud. I've disappeared. I play with hands. Like, oh, well, <laughs> you know, anything to make me feel good, yeah. you know, take a breather, enjoy the fresh air and go, do you know what? There's more to life than stressing about the bills and this, mm. that and the other, you know, and, and worrying about what people think of you. I don't care. Clearly, most people think I'm a lesbian. I just <laughs> bother. No, just me. Just me. Oh, no, I'm not, you're not thinking, you're I'm right. wishing you were a lesbian. I'm hoping you're a lesbian. <laughs> but it's just that. It's like, who cares what people think about you? You know, it's what you think about yourself. And you should care about yourself. And you should care about your own but mental especially when state. You're, you know, when you're young, it's hard to... You may, you may sort of know mm. that on some level, but it's very hard to feel that, to not care when you're young mm. what other people think of you. Yeah, it's awful, isn't it? It's terrible. Everybody should be taught at a very young age, don't give a fuck about what anybody else mm. thinks. Because, do you know what? It's only what matters to you. Mm. And if you hold yourself in high regard and you do what you think is best, because there's always going to be the naysayers, there's always going to be someone who's out to get you, or this, you know, you do have supporters and... That's life. Not everybody's going to like you. And it's also okay to not be you know, happy every minute of the day. Yeah. As a, like, uh, uh, God, I love a good cry. <laughs> yeah. Love a good cry. It's great. <laughs> now, Frank, your next project 
is about another sort of hidden thing, and something that we talked about a lot on, on this show, and because it's something that I think in the future we're going to look back on and be horrified. Yeah, I'm uh, researching a project uh, around the, the direct provision system, so I'm at that stage now where I'm listening to a lot of people. Um, we were talking earlier, actually, about how important it is to tell stories now, because I think we're certainly going to be telling stories in years to come about the uh, direct provision mm. system, which is an inhumane system. You know, th- the stories that, that you hear are utterly devastating. Yeah. Uh, people arrive uh, into Ireland traumatised, and then they're traumatised again uh, by the nature of the system. So I'm doing something similar to Michael inside where I'm just basically telling a fictional story, but it's just going to depict what life is like. But even now, I still, when I talk about it, because when I'm researching a film, I'm talking about it all, all the time with everybody I meet, really, in a way. I still feel that people don't really understand yeah. how awful it is. How soul-crushing how so, it is. How so, soul-crushing it is. Yeah, it's torturous, really. And, it's uh, degrading. It's, yeah. Yeah. No purpose, no ability. You also find people who are just so inspiring within it because of the way they've dealt with the situation. Like, um, you know, Ellie from Our yes. Table, um, who's been on the show and everything. So it is amazing the sort of resilience of the human spirit. Absolutely. I'm reminded of that every time I make a film and I go, God, the resilience of, of people is, is, is astonishing, really. Bravery of people. It, it does take people to speak out, doesn't it? To yeah. tell their stories. Well, the thing, of course, is that... Um, you know, people's stories is why you need to be told because they, they can change things. But a lot of people don't have access to tell their story, to things they need to tell. And you're providing that. So that's where, you know, you're a, a wonderful human yeah. being. I've decided to seal of approval from Pantasocracy <laughs> here. And Lisa, you, of course, use your many talents to heal the world in your own way. <laughs> and, and music, of course, is one of those. It's one of the big obvious things that almost everybody turns to music at some stage in their lives. Broken hearts and all sorts of things. There's a song for everything. So you have, are you going to sing a song for us? called Undertow. Yes, yeah, so this is, this is a love song, really, I suppose. I want to swim in your current Carry me out up and away I want to float On every word you say to be underneath your weather Every cloud and may a song I want to float In between everyone In between everyone I want to see Everywhere I go, everywhere I go. 
Magical. Um, that is the end of this episode of Pantasocracy. I'd like to thank my guest, the good witch, Miss Lisa Hannigan. <laughs> Spitfire, Sears Long. Lost to the lesbian community, <laughs> Katrina. And, uh, and an all-round good egg, uh, Barry Aral, filmmaker extraordinaire. Um, and all episodes, past episodes, are podcasts on all the usual platforms. Uh, thanks to Athena Media, who produced the show on behalf of RTE, especially John and Helen, and to everybody here at Windmill Lane Studios, where we're recording. Thank you. Good night. <laughs>